talking about the connection between the gospel, Genesis, and spiritual warfare. This past week, I did one of our corporate challenges. I went into my furnace room in the dark, and I sat alone, and I listened to the Lord. And while I was sitting alone listening, this message came to me. So when I felt it was appropriate, I took out my phone, and I opened my app, and I pressed record, and I just started to speak, and this is what came out. The way it came out, I haven't really edited much. I just tidied it up so that I could look at it and know what I was reading. But it is raw and uncut and unfiltered. And so I want to share that word with you tonight. And I want to inspire you. I want to motivate you. I want to excite you. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. Verse 17 For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let me say this first. I'm so grateful that Paul gives the reason why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He makes this statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it makes me feel good. Because it helps me win friends and influence people. No. He is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. That's why he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of it because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Back to my notes. Many have tried to neuter the gospel, to remove its sting, to make it more palatable, to make it attractive to the unbeliever. Many have tried to neuter the gospel to find another reason not to be ashamed of it. This is a tactic of the enemy of our souls. Absolutely. Because if he can convince us to water down the gospel, then we become unwitting pawns in his hand. Pastor Joel talked about this spiritual chess match that Satan seems to be playing with us from the moment we're born. Let's use another example. Let's talk about poker. Satan goes all in every hand, even though he doesn't have anything worth betting on. Because he's a defeated foe. We have the best hand. We have the royal flush. 
But so many times we get scared when he pushes all the chips in. And we fold. Satan has thousands of churches in North America. Hundreds of thousands of churches around the world who preach a powerless gospel. Which is no gospel at all. How has he been able to do this? I believe he's been able to convince hundreds of thousands of pastors to neuter the gospel by promising them what he promised Jesus. When he tempted Jesus with the appetite for food, the appetite for self-worship, and the appetite for glory. Let's read it, Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus, look at this, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Obviously. This is when the tempter came to him. And he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Undeterred, the devil took him into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot Against the stone, but Jesus said to him, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Undeterred, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then... The devil left him, and then angels came and ministered to him. Satan's a master manipulator. He's an expert at twisting the scriptures to appeal to our base desires. The sad reality is that many believers do not have the word of God hidden in their hearts, which makes them unable and eventually unwilling to resist the things Satan tempts them with. Even pastors, when he tempts them with the appetite for food or pleasure or things we desire, things we need, when he tempts us with our appetite for self-worship or the appetite for glory, When tempting us, Satan always calls the authority of Scripture into question. He always calls the Word of God into question. He always twists the Word of God. That's what he did when he tempted Jesus. Why does he do that? Because all he knows how to do is lie. And all God knows how to do is tell the truth. Every word that proceeds from God is true. Every word that proceeds from God corresponds with reality. The opposite of true is Satan. The opposite of of Satan is true. That whatever proceeds from his mouth is false. 
And whatever proceeds from his mouth tears at the fabric of reality, denies reality. The other day I drove past the Seventh-day Adventist church. The sign on the front lawn reads, Jesus loves me, this I know. Mm, sounds nice. Sounds true. It is true. But how can we know it's true? How can I say, this I know? Let to finish the song. For the Bible tells me so. The only way someone can know that Jesus loves them is because the Bible tells them so. If I tell them, if you tell them, we still have to appeal to an authority that is higher than our own. My word doesn't mean anything. Your word doesn't mean anything. God's word does. We have to appeal to a higher authority. That authority is the word of God. The 66 books contained within this Holy Bible. Jesus is everywhere. Remember, we're talking about the connection between the gospel, Genesis, creation, and spiritual warfare. Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is in the creation account. He's all through the Old Testament. He's everywhere. Listen to this, Alistair Begg. He said, we find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, Christ is predicted. In the Gospels, Christ is revealed. In the book of Acts, Christ is preached. In the epistles, Christ is explained. And in Revelation, Christ is expected. The entire Bible and the Gospel is summed up in this simple phrase that was on that sign. Jesus loves me, this I know. However, the simple Gospel is only true if the whole Bible is true. There's always been a war on truth. It started in the Garden of Eden when Satan asked Eve, did God really say? That war on truth has continued to this very day. Each and every one of us has been impacted by this war in one way or another. Each and every one of us has been propagandized by this war. Here's an example. Pastor Joel mentioned it last week. In our elementary school teaching, we were told the earth is millions of years old. We were told that the universe began with a big bang and has been expanding ever since. We were told that the first living creatures crawled out of the primordial ooze. We were told that those creatures evolved into multiple species. We were told that humans evolved from one of those species. What we were told conflicted with what we were told at church. kept going to those schools and listening to that propaganda of the enemy. Fast forward to today, our kids in our public schools are being taught that humans are evolving away from the binary of male and female. They're being taught that males and females can be born in the wrong body. They're being taught that humans are evolving away from normative sexual relationships between men and women. They're being taught that monogamy and marriage between one man and one woman for life are just social constructs of oppression and injustice. 
The spirit of the age, also known as Satan's catechism, is being forced down our children's throat at government indoctrination camps, formerly known as public schools. And they're consistently redefining what God has clearly defined in his word. When my daughter's teacher asked them this week, what can I call you? And my daughter said, just call us boys and girls. She replied, but I can't do that. We all know there's more than two genders. We all know. Remember that part of my five-year plan where we're going to find an alternative for public school? I'm highly motivated. The sad reality, though, guys, is that many Christians wouldn't clap like you just did. Some of them are well-meaning, but they are accepting this form of teaching. They believe that God changes, morality changes, and they're doing exactly what the Apostle Paul told young Pastor Timothy that they would do. They are turning away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. We will all be tempted to wander off into myths if we don't accept the whole word of God as completely true. Satan has done well to convince humanity, even the very elect, that the Bible is mostly mythology. Or outdated. For example, Satan has convinced many Christians that some or all of the creation account is just an allegory. But if we say that some of the creation account is an allegory, then we have to ask ourselves, how deep does that allegory go? Allegory means extended metaphor or even a myth or a parable. The fact is, you can't answer that question. Or at least we can't answer it authoritatively because the Bible doesn't answer that question. The Bible contains allegory. But the Bible also tells us when it's speaking allegorically. When we're not directly told by the scriptures to interpret it figuratively, then we must interpret it literally. You might want to, but you can't faithfully understand the creation account as anything but literal. Because it doesn't tell you you can. I know. Moses never says to interpret the creation account allegorically. Now, he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible claims that it's the theonoustos, the exhale of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. If he wanted us to understand it allegorically, he would have told us so. But he told us in very clear terms what happened, for example, at creation. When God said that or sorry, when Moses said that God created plants bearing seed according to their kind and trees bearing fruit with the seeds in it according to its kind, in one day, I have to believe that it was one literal 24-hour period defined by morning and evening, as the Bible says. 
I have to. If I call it into question, not if I question it and interrogate it and examine it, but if I call it into question, like doubt its truth, then I have to take that to its logical extreme, okay? And I have to call everything else into question that's in the word. Even Jesus loves me, this I know. If I cannot know that Jesus loves me, then I cannot know the gospel, the power of God unto salvation. I cannot know the righteousness of God revealed through the gospel. I cannot know it. If I can't know that Jesus loves me, then I can't be saved. If I can't be saved, I'm a miserable wretch without hope in this world. Are you starting to see the connection now between the gospel and Genesis and the whole Bible and spiritual warfare and how there is a war on truth? Amen. And how Satan wants us to call the word of God into question constantly? Listen, I'm just reading this as it came to me. I'm not saying it's inspired. I make mistakes. But this is how it came to me. I'm just reading it to you. Spiritual warfare is not only casting out demons or blowing the shofar. Oftentimes, spiritual warfare is subtle. It's subversive. It's sustained over a long period of time. Satan has been playing the long game since the Garden of Eden. You know, like China's been playing the long game with America. Satan's been playing the long game with humanity since the Garden of Eden. He's patient. He's waiting us out. But he knows he can't win. He knows he's a defeated foe. But Jesus said he was a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And through manipulation and intimidation, he intends to drag as many people as possible into that lake of fire with him. Okay, let's go back to talking about the neutered gospel for a few moments. Here's the facts. Here's the truth about the gospel. Remember, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and the Gentile. And through it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's why he's not ashamed of it. There's a lot of so-called Christians that are ashamed of the gospel because of that very reason. They think Christianity is just a lifestyle that you can live without God's divine power. You can't, you can't live this Christian life without the spirit inside of you. Amen. You can fake it. You can live something adjacent to it, but you can't live the Christian life. That's why Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through what? Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's the only way you're, you're living the Christian life. So let's go back to this neutered gospel, this powerless gospel. Here's the, here's the facts. No matter how much icing you put on top of the gospel, it's still a bitter cake. And no matter how many spoonfuls of sugar you take, the gospel is still a tough medicine to swallow. No matter how you tell it, when it comes to the gospel, eventually you will have to get to the bitter part. When you give an account for the hope that lies within you, 
with gentleness and respect, eventually you have to get to the bitter part. Gospel, or the gospel is kind of like Buckley's. It tastes awful, but it works. <laughs> the gospel is only good news because it follows really, really bad news. The problem is we never or very, or very rarely tell people the bad news. We try to desour and sweeten the gospel. But whenever we do that, we rob it of its power. Think about it. Just think about this. For thousands of years, God's people lived under the bitterness of the law. They lived under the futility of the law. They were frustrated by their total inability to be justified by it. They lived under what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, a ministry of death. And God was okay with it. He was okay with them living in their guilt because he knew that in the fullness of time he was going to send his son to take away that guilt. That's why later on when Paul is explaining why he's not ashamed of this gospel and he explains this gospel in Romans 3.25, he said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, listen, in his forbearance, he left the sins committed in the past unpunished. Those sins committed under the law, he left them unpunished. They were covered each year, yes, by the Paschal Lamb and the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. There was offerings and sacrifices made. Pastor Joel read about them in Psalm 66 tonight. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the better sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. And God was willing to let his people live under that heavy burden so that when the good news came, they'd know how good it was. Amen. God didn't always rescue his people every time they faced hardship. Sometimes they had to go through it in order to realize it was God's hand at work and not their own. Just a couple more pages. Jesus sent by God did not come into the world to condemn it. Amen. Okay. He came to save it. It needed to be saved because it was already lost and dying under God's condemnation. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn the world? It was already condemned. John 3, 17. Jesus didn't condemn anyone because they were already condemned. And once a person is fully condemned, you can't add any more. <clears throat> Afraid to use this kind of language, progressive Christians... And attractional churches prefer to misquote the words of Jesus when he said to the Pharisees who caught the woman in the act of adultery, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Have they ever thrown that one at you? Matt, you can't say that. Let him without sin cast the first stone. And when no one could cast a stone, what did Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. But why didn't he? 
I mean, she was caught in the very act of adultery. Why didn't he condemn her? Because adultery wasn't wrong anymore? Or was it because she was already condemned? I think the answer is obvious. It was because she was already condemned. The law, Deuteronomy 22.22, justly condemned her. She was caught in the act. The evidence was stacked against her. She was without excuse. She was to be stoned. The reason why Jesus convinced the religious leaders to drop their stones was because he knew he was going to suffer her punishment and their punishment. Jesus was going to pay their wages and her wages. The wages, Romans 3.23 tells us, the wages of sin is death. Or that's, sorry, Romans 6. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All owe wages. All owe God death because of transgressing his law. No one is innocent. Psalm 53 and 3 says they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. This is the totally depraved nature of every human born of a woman. It's the really bad news. It's the bitter cake. It's the tough medicine to swallow. I even sense how silent it is in here because it's heavy. But it's true. But only when one is informed that they are condemned by the law, only when one is confronted by the consequences of sin, are they ready to hear the really good news. Then and only then are they really ready to taste and see that the Lord is good. Only when they know just how hungry they are. Amen. Are they ready to taste the bread of life? It doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I go almost all day without eating because it's busy. And you don't realize it when you're busy. Then all of a sudden, the hunger hits you. And you realize just how hungry you are. There's a lot of hungry people in the world. They're hungry for the bread of life. That when they eat of it, they'll never hunger again. But they're so busy and so distracted and so comforted by the gospel we preach that they never realize how hungry they actually are. This is the spiritual war that we're fighting the war to preach the full gospel, to resist the temptation to water it down, to resist the temptation to call God's word into question. Now, to win a war, you need weapons that are more powerful than the enemy's weapons. The good news is we have such weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of this world, but they do have incredible power 
They have the power to demolish enemy strongholds, to demolish arguments, to demolish lofty ideas that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. They have power to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. These weapons are the gospel of God and the word of our testimony. These are the weapons that we fight with. The gospel of God that is true because the whole word of God is true. And the word of our testimony, how it has changed and transformed our lives. To fight and win this war on truth, we have to believe every word of this book because this book proceeds from the mouth of God. It is the Theonoustos. Paul told Pastor Timothy, the word of God is inspired and breathed out by God. That's what I'm referring to, the Theonoustos. This word, this book proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word is completely true. Uh, The word of God is yes and amen to those who believe. The word is not true because we believe it. We believe it because it is true. The truth of God tears down strongholds. The truth of God tears down lofty ideas raised against the knowledge of God. The truth of God takes thoughts captive and makes them obedient to Christ. And there is no other way to tear down enemy strongholds. You can't do it any other way. You can't tear them down with your own strength or by your own authority. To tear down an enemy stronghold, you have to appeal to a power that is higher than you and to an authority that is higher than yours. That power and that authority comes from the gospel of God because it reveals the righteousness of God. We cannot be ashamed of this gospel but we must celebrate it, preach it. We must preach it even though we will suffer for it, be persecuted for it. We cannot water it down. We cannot sterilize it. We cannot neuter it. We must unleash it. We must unleash its power by believing it and speaking it. We can't mumble it over and over under our breath while millions who've never heard it fall into the flames of hell. You think about that. Amen.